Last week in our study in 1 Peter, we explored the confidence that we have in Christ in the face of fear and in the face of the enemy. And today we're going to explore this passage then on um, how, to, how a saint is called to live for the will of God. And all through this series, what we've been exploring is that God works a miracle in the life of everyone who places their trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. He takes us from being something that is common, that is earthly, and transforms us into something that is beautiful and holy, a saint, one who is set apart for obedience to Jesus Christ. What I want to encourage you, if you haven't learned anything else in this series, that if you've trusted Jesus, would you adopt what God says about your identity, that you are a saint. Because in, until we truly understand this is who we are in Christ Jesus, it will become very difficult for us to live like a saint. But when you do, when you embrace what Christ has already done for you and the power that he gives to us to live a transformed life, it takes all of our life, takes on a whole new depth and meaning that is incredibly beautiful. Well, most of us would probably say that we want God's will for our lives. If I was to ask you to raise your hands, um, pretty much everybody would raise their hands, um, most because that is what they want, some because they'll feel a little intimidated if they don't raise their hand, um, although that might be more honest. Um, we know in our hearts that what God wants is best. But often, if we're really honest, what we want truly is for God to bless our will for our life, right? I want God to take my plans, my expectations of what my life should be and empower it and bless it and bring it to pass. But that's not the same as wanting God's will for our life. In the back of our minds, we have these expectations of what we think God should do or what we think might be required in order for us to have a full, happy, and significant life. But even as Jael prayed earlier, God knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what you and I truly need, what will bring fulfillment and joy and significance into our life better than we do. So when we come to this passage, when we hear Peter say this in, in chapter 4, verse 2, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, in our bodies, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God, he's giving us an instruction, not just of what we should do, but ultimately of what will be best for us, what will be most fulfilling for us. But the challenge is that inside of you and I, there is a battle of two wills, our human fleshly desire and God's desire. Before a person comes to faith in Jesus, our will reigns supreme in our hearts. It's there alone. Uh, our will is, is impacted by the power, the influence, the wills of others, by society, by culture, and certainly by the will of God. But what drives us is what we want. 
But when we come to Christ through trusting what Jesus has done on the cross in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, he makes us a new creation and he puts his Holy Spirit inside of us as a guarantee, as a deposit that we belong to him and that we are a new creation. And with that, he places his spirit in us to guide us and show us his will, his plan, and design for our life. But because the old me, as you hear me refer to it often, because old dead Drew keeps rising up from the grave and wanting to take control of who I am, there's a battle of wills going on inside of me and going on inside of you. Self versus the Savior. So what happens when what you want is different from what God wants? The question is, when that's the scenario of your life, who wins the battle of the wills? For you and for me. Well, let's think about it for just a moment before we really dive into these verses. What are the things that, that most people want in life? What are the things that you and I want? If we're, if we're really honest and we were to write down, here's what I would like to have in life, Somewhere, it, these four will probably come up. The first one is, I'd like an easy life. Anybody else want an easy life? You know, I want to be comfortable. You know, I don't want to have too much stress. You know, I don't have to be the richest person in the world or the most famous or the best looking um, because I, I've missed all three of those, absolutely. Um, but I would like to have an easy life. Secondly, I'd like some pleasure. Most of us would. Now, how far I take that pleasure determines really the, shows the condition of my heart, um, but that's what we want. Third, I'd like some possessions, and so would you. There are things that you dream about having, whether it's a, a flat or a, or a house or a car or, um, or a really sweet guitar um, you know, things, and if I could only play the really sweet guitar, that would be really even better. Um, and we also tend to desire success. You and I want to be successful in our life. Those are our natural desires, and there would be other things that we could add to the list. But if we're to determine to live for the will of God, we need to see what God wants, right? And oftentimes, there is a conflict between what we want and what God wants. So what does God want? Well, there are numerous passages in the Scripture, including this passage here in 1 Peter, that gives us indications of God's expectations for you and I. But perhaps one of the greatest summaries of God's expectation, of God's desire, where he very plainly says, this is what I want, is found in the Old Testament book of Micah, Chapter 6, verse 8. So I'm going to invite you to, to look at that. We'll put it up on the screen. And if it's a verse you're not familiar with, I encourage you to, to, to highlight it in your Bible and, uh, and to memorize it. Here's what the Lord says to the prophet Micah. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? So God lists four things that are his expectations, his will for your life and my life and the life of everyone who says they trust in him 
as Lord. First, to do justice. This shows the heart of God and the character of God. All through the scripture, God calls his people to stand on the side of justice. And as followers of Jesus, we need to be agents that minister to see that justice happens to those who are oppressed, to those who are pushed down, to those who are taken advantage of. We need to be voices and instruments of justice. Secondly, he says to love kindness. The words that we would use here, the phrase that we would use that means exactly the same thing is to show or to give grace to others. That's one of our values as a church, that we're to, we're to love God, we're to live truth, the truth of God's word, and we're to give grace to others. That's what he calls us to do. And then thirdly, he calls us to walk humbly. That it's not about my pride or me being put on display, but about humbling ourselves before the Lord. And then fourthly, and maybe you didn't see that there's actually four in the, in the way the language is written, the fourth one is all about relationship. He not only wants us to walk humbly, God wants us to walk in fellowship, in oneness, united with him. That's what God wants for your life and my life. He wants justice to be the acts that we do. He wants us to give grace to others, to walk humbly, and to walk intimately with him. So, Again, the question, when what you want is different than what God wants, who wins most of the time in your life, where you are right now? Now, we know the ultimate answer is that God will win. Um, he will, you know, every, every time you wrestle with God, um, you may feel like you're making some progress, but he's stronger than all of us. He wins, and that's the best news there is. Because if I got what I wanted, I would destroy my life in no time. And so would you. So what are, the, what are we pursuing? Are you pursuing comfort or doing justice? Are you pursuing pleasure or giving grace and kindness to others? Are you pursuing possessions or walking in humility? Are you pursuing success or a relationship with God. Here are some truths that, that apply um, to this area of our life and, and specifically to the context in which Peter is writing here in the context of suffering and trials. They're important things to remember. We need to remember that God will use trial and suffering to move us from our will to his will. That's one of the purposes why trials come in our life is so that we will turn away from the human desire to something that is better, his desire. And what I hope to show you today is that his way, his will is so much better for us than our own. In the end, our struggles will become an enduring testimony of God's faithfulness and goodness how God not only brings us through trial, but use those difficult circumstances to actually make us more like Jesus, to change us and transform us. A second truth is this. The way God often chooses to show us that he is in control is to put us in situations we cannot 
control. Isn't that true? God oftentimes, at least for me, has to bring me to the end of myself to bring me to the point where I realize I am out of control. That is a good place for me to be. It's a good place for you to be as well. Because if you're trying to control your life and your circumstances, you're not living for the will of God, and neither am I. So often, God chooses to show us he is in control by allowing us to walk through circumstances and situations and trials where we discover that we have no control. That here's the beauty of pursuing God's will for your life over your own. Remember those, those four things that, that we listed that we tend to want. Comfort, pleasure, possessions, and success. I think that's pretty universal across all humanity, that those are desires that we have. What we find is that if we pursue doing justice, Jesus comforts us and makes us a comforter to others. If we pursue kindness, showing grace, Jesus fills us with joy and we become an instrument of his joy being given to others. I mean, it not only comes into us as a container where we receive his presence and, and his power and his joy in our life, but it flows through us. And there's nothing more refreshing. You know, if you think about that like, like water, well, water in a container is great, but it goes stale. But living water is water that flows through like a river or a stream or a spring. That's what God wants to do. He wants to build in you something greater than pleasure, a joy that is filled with a living nature that flows in and through your life from the resource of God himself. If we walk humbly, Jesus provides for us and gives us opportunity to bless others. So instead of being focused on possessions, we can become agents of generosity because as we humble ourselves with the Lord and he meets our needs, he also gives us more and more opportunity to bless others. And again, it's a flowing process like living water. And if we walk with him, everything we do counts for his eternal glory and for our good. If you really want success, really want significance, determine to grow closer and closer to the Lord, to walk with him. There is no greater significance in life than that. And, and the great example we have in the Old Testament is the person of Enoch, where the description of his life was that Enoch walked with God and he was not because God took him. His walk with God was so close, so intimate, that God just said, Enoch, it's time for you to just come home with me. And he never even experienced physical death. His intimacy with God, the success of his life was immeasurable. So if we really want a good life, the life that you dream of, pursue God's will above your own. It is the only place to find real comfort, true joy, full provision, and lasting purpose. The problem is, the reason that you and I have a tendency to not get excited about God's will is because of that battle between us and because uh, fear enters in because we don't trust God enough. 
we're afraid he's going to take away from us the things that we think will be meaningful and significant. But the more that you get to know him, the more that you learn to love him, you discover the truth that true love casts out fear and you can walk through each day in anticipation of saying, God, whatever you want today, that's what I want to pursue. Whatever you have in store, I'm ready for the adventure because you are with me. So we're going to walk through today together. There is no greater experience that you and I can have as a human than walking through the adventure of each day with God, pursuing his plan and his purpose for us. I've told you this many, many times. This came from a dear friend of mine and and pastor and mentor. The reason, again, the reason why we have have trouble wanting God's will is because we don't trust him. We're fearful he'll take away. But the promise is, the promise that I learned many years ago that I pray someday I will learn to live is this. If we knew what God knows, we would always want what God wants. He sees it all. He sees what is best for you and best for me. So Peter, in this passage, tells us how to move from a life that pursues what we want, our will, to a life that pursues ultimately what God desires. And there's, here's some great encouragement from, from uh, John Piper, wonderful Bible teacher. His commentary on this, this verse on 1 Peter 4.2, he says this, we can live for our will or for God's will or we could have our passions so transformed we need not choose between the two. That's my prayer for each one of us is that our passions, our desires become so integrated, interwoven with God's that we don't even have to think about choosing God's will over our own. They become one. So let's look at these verses. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of their time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And so the, the first instruction, um, if we're to live for God's will, that a saint, you and I, in Christ Jesus, we are to be armed with a renewed mind. It all begins in how we think. As you think determines who you are and what you become. There is always the first place that the battle of wills occurs in your life and my life is in our minds. Our thinking needs to be changed. And so what Peter is saying here is he's saying this is where we need to begin. If you really um, want to change, if you're not where you want to be, if you're not where you know you should be, it begins by changing your thinking, changing your mind. And change requires you to be different. If you do the same things over and over again, you will get the same results. And so he's saying, arm yourself with a different mindset, a different process of thinking. Most often, we can't change the circumstances that we are in. 
But there is one thing we can always change or we can always submit to God for him to change, and that is us, to change our thinking and our viewpoint. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of heart, that leads to a change of direction with our life, that results in a change of actions. That's why the scripture continually calls us to repent, to turn around, to ch- and it begins by changing our thinking. And, and this, what we're to do is to arm ourselves with the same thoughts as Jesus, to train our minds to think the way Jesus thinks, to think God thoughts. And that means that we need to be intentional about what we think and, and not just allow our minds to run wherever they take us, but to discipline them and to change our thought processes to see that it is in alignment with those of Jesus. So what kind of things did Jesus think? If we're to arm ourselves with the same mind, with the same thinking as Jesus, we need to think about what Jesus thought about. There's a whole lot of thinking just in that one sentence, but that's what we need to do. What did Jesus think about? Um, Well, first of all, we discover When we look at Jesus in the Gospels, we discover he thought about the Father's will all the time. He said, I came not to do my own will, but to do the will of the Father. Equally connected with that is that we see the one thing that Jesus is incredibly intentional about is time with the Father. If you look through the Gospels, and if you were to try to determine Jesus' ministry plan, it would seem like the most chaotic, crazy thing you ever imagined. He seemed to just kind of wander from place to place. I mean, he would show up in Jerusalem for different festivals, which were part of the Jewish calendar. Um, But it would be hard for us to say, okay, well, I'm going to try to follow Jesus' plan for ministry. And, and here's the things we're going to do. You know, I'm going to begin by, by doing this kind of series of messages or this, this kind of teaching and these kind of works. We couldn't do it because we're not him. But the one thing that we really can be modeling our lives after is what he was intentional about, which was time with the Father. Continually, you'll see where Jesus slipped away in the early hours of the morning or the late hours of the night to walk with the Father, to be intimate with him. So he thought about being with the Father. Secondly, Jesus thought about justice. He came to set prisoners free. Jesus thought about mercy, about showing grace. By his grace, we are saved. Jesus' thoughts were humble. We read about that. We'll read this in just a moment from Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Jesus thought about serving the needs of others. In fact, here, let's, let's look at the description the Bible gives of Jesus' mind. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he didn't think about himself. Well, what did he do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the mind of Jesus we're to arm ourselves with, a mind that is humble, a mind that is focused on obedience, a mind that is focused on serving, a mind that is not focused on, them, on himself, himself, but on the Lord. We are to arm ourselves and prepare for each day with this power and pr- the protection of Jesus' thoughts. Humility, service, obedience, emptying ourselves of us so that we can be filled with him. So a saint is armed with a renewed mind, the mind of Jesus. Um, and this, remember, this whole context is written amongst the setting of suffering and trials. So here's, here's another truth to grab a hold of. Instead of wrestling with God for control of your life in an attempt to escape suffering, arm yourself with the mind of Jesus to give over control to God's will and you will find deep connection and peace from God in the midst of suffering. That's what Jesus did when he said, not my will, but your will be done. Our lives begin to change when we begin to pray in the midst of trial and suffering, Lord, would you use this for your glory and to change me to become more like Jesus? None of us like pain. But if that pain leads us to transformation, we discover it is well worth it. Let's look at the next verses. 1 Peter 4.2. So as to live the rest of your life, uh, the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices or is enough for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensualities, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So not only does a saint arm his mind with uh, the renewal thoughts of Jesus, but a saint abandons sin. To abandon sin, we choose to turn away from the passions of the flesh to the will of God. And, And ultimately, here's what he's saying. Enough already. Now, how many of you who are parents have ever used that phrase or something very similar with your children? My parents certainly used it quite frequently with me, you know? And it's one of those things that comes to mind, especially like when you're on a trip and and you're in in the car and the children are in the back seat and the brothers and sisters are fighting. You know, there comes a point where you go, enough already. All right, don't make me pull over. You know, all those kind of things. As, as a parent, we had this, this is how we did, dealt with this. We didn't really say enough already. We, we made it really simple. We just said two. Because the whole idea is that we were gonna count to three, you know, and if you got to three, you were in big trouble. But I figured one really didn't do anything, you know? I mean, if, if you say one, they know, I got, a, I got a free one coming. So we just started at two. Just made it easier, you know, two. That means you're, and there was, there's no two and a halves, no 2.5, no 2.8, just two. 
And what was amazing, we really were blessed with, with great children. And, and I can't even remember times when they got to three. I know they did, but it's all become a blur. So, but that's what he's saying. He's saying to all of us, you're on two, okay? Enough already. Quit doing it. C.S. Lewis, as he struggled with kind of coming to grips with the nature of, uh, of this, um, he wrote this in, his, in an incredible essay called The Weight of Glory. And we've shared this here before. I know Ian's used this quote before. It says this, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards that God, or that prom- they're promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition while infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's what God is saying. He says, enough already. I've got something so much better for you. That's the great thing about God's will. We have believed the lie that if I turn my life over to God, I will lose things that I want. The truth is that when you give your life fully over to God, he gives you things you never dreamed of that are so much better, so much more fulfilling and joyful. You don't lose anything. It is all gain on our part. So Peter is trying to teach us to to do this turning. And he says, turn away from those things. But, But the important thing to remember is that in this turning, it's not just a turning away, it's a turning to. Because if he just said enough already, that wouldn't be enough motivation to keep us from going back. He's saying instead, I want you to fill your life with these positive things. These things that are going to bring meaning to your life in ways that those things I'm asking you to turn away from never could. He says this, beginning in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sin. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now we're going to look at these verses in the conclusion of our series next week. But but what we have here are two contrasts. They're they're two set uh, um, contrasts of four different things. The things that we turn away from and the things that we turn to. Here's what he's calling us to. He's saying, turn from drunkenness to a sober mind that focuses on prayer. Turn away from giving away control of your life um, to a chemical, to being intentional to have your prayers be answered and to see the power and glory of God be displayed in and through your life. Turn from lust, which is seeking our own pleasure. That's what he, when he's talking about Um, these drunken parties and orgies. He's saying, turn away from lust, which is seeking my own pleasure, to a sincere love for others. 
Instead of having everything be about me, learn to allow my life and my love to flow through you and touch the hearts and lives of others. Also, turn from the practice of maligning, which means taking advantage of or tearing down others, to the practice of hospitality. Instead of beating others down and speaking poorly about them, what I want you to do as a saint, if you want to live for the will of God, is to engage your life in showing hospitality to others, welcoming others. And he says also, turn from lawless idolatry to serving the Lord faithfully for his glory and fame. Enough already. There is so much more for you. Now, there's a little story of, a, of an animal that I think kind of illustrates, uh, at least to a degree, the attitude that we're to have. There, there's a, a little creature. It's a, it's a form of a weasel. It's called the ermine stout. And uh, we can put a picture. There he is. Isn't he cute? Yeah, they're actually pretty vicious, um, but but it's really cute, and um, you know, and they bounce around. They kind of they they got springy um, legs, and, and they're they're amazing little man, animals. Now, what's interesting about the ermine stout is this is its winter coat. It's pure white, with the exception of a little black um, dip on its tail. But in the summertime. Um, and, and when it lives in warmer climates, it has a, a brown kind of dusty, dirty coat and then just a, a, a white chest. But its winter coat is always this beautiful, pure white. And it was a very pre, um, treasured animal. In fact, um, for the royal families of, of Europe in the Middle Ages, when you would see the royal robes that they would wear, the collars were almost always made of the fur of this ermine stout. It was a royal covering that was used. And so they were hunted because they were so valuable, because it was this symbol of royalty. But the ermine stout was an interesting creature. That even though it was a predator and it would hunt other, other animals, um, it had one characteristic that um, was taken advantage of in its hunting, because they wanted to make sure when they would hunt it that they didn't damage the fur too much, and so they were specific about how they would do it. And what they discovered was that the ermine stout is very protective of its coat. It wants to guard the purity of its white fur. So what they would do is they would find its home, its hole in the ground, and they would put tar around the hole. And then they would, they would bring the dogs and they would chase the ermine stout. And when it would go back to its hole, it would see the tar. But rather than go into the safety of the hole, it would turn and face the attack of the dogs. Because it didn't want to have its beautiful coat soiled. In a sense, that's what God is calling us to do. He's saying, I have given you a coat of righteousness. Jesus has given you his identity. He's given you my identity. You want to make sure that you live in such a way that it's not stained with the tar of this world because you are worth so much more. What God is calling us to do is to turn away not because he's trying to deny us something, but because he says you are worth so much more. I want you to live out 
the new identity, the righteousness that I have given you in Christ Jesus, and I want others to see him in you. I think that's applicable because in some ways, with these verses set in the midst of suffering, what Peter is saying, it's better if we face trial and adversity than we stain the righteousness that God has given us because it is worth so much more. Time enough. It's enough already. Live for what lasts. Live like who God saved you to be. A saint arms their mind with the thinking of Jesus. A saint abandons sin to do the will of God, turns turns from an old life to a new life. And then a saint lives aware of God's accounting. Verses five and six. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. These verses are further motivation for us to show grace to others. We're not to be the judge, but we're to remember that everyone must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And we have been entrusted with the work of Christ of giving the good news, the hope that we have in the gospel to those around us. So when we see others whose lives are defined by things that are against God's will, it should not be with eyes and an attitude of judgment, but with hearts filled with grace and compassion because we want them to discover life in Christ. We're to remember there is an accounting both for us and for others. We're to enter into the mission of Jesus. Remember what Jesus said when his very first message, back in Luke chapter four, he quotes from Isaiah and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recover sight of the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God's saying, Jesus came to rescue prisoners and the attitude that we are to have is to the same one that he had is that God has given us his Holy Spirit, given us his word, given us the gospel because he wants to use us as instruments of rescuing those who have been imprisoned by sin and see that they are set free in Christ Jesus. Now, to some degree, this this verse, verse six, is a little puzzling to us where it says, because there's been some misteaching aligned with this verse, which says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh, meaning that they'd already suffered the penalty of physical death, um, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, Now, what does he mean by that? Well, first and foremost, we need to remember that in the early church that that Peter is preaching to, um, by this point in time, several believers, many believers, had already died. And so they're wondering, you know, because their first expectation was, well, Jesus is coming back, which he is, but if someone died before he came back, what happens to him? 
And so he's giving instruction about that, that the, the gospel has been communicated in a way that gives life, life eternal. So that's one part of it. There was a, a concern for those who'd already suffered physical death. And Peter wants to reassure his readers um, with news that the believers, though they have gone through the penalty of physical death um, the way all people do, they need not worry about their future with God. He says they will still live in the spirit the way God does. We have nothing to fear in Christ, not even death. But beyond that, there, there are some other aspects of this verse that I think are applicable and, and, and um, are important for us to recognize. Peter already told us that Jesus preached to the spirits who were in prison a, a message of judgment in, back in chapter 3, verse 19. And apparently during this same time, Jesus preached a message of fulfillment of salvation to those who were faithful to God in paradise or what's referred in the scripture as Abraham's bosom. You can read about it in Luke chapter 16, verse 22 in the, um, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Those who anticipated that the Messiah would come, Jesus evidently showed the completion of God's message of salvation, that his message had a name. His salvation had a name, and the name is Jesus Christ. The Old Testament saints knew that God would send a redeemer. Every animal sacrifice that was offered in the temple was an expression of faith that God would one day take the sin away himself, that he would see, send a Messiah, but they didn't know the Messiah's name. But that completion was then proclaimed to those who had gone before. That salvation is a person and his name is Jesus Christ. In doing so, that's not a second chance. That's a fulfillment of the message and a completion of the understanding of the faith they already had. And I believe that's where this is pointing to. Well, fourthly, a saint awaits the return of Jesus. And this is where we're going to end as well. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Keep the end in sight. Remember that all of us face judgment and that we're to be instruments of the gospel because Jesus Christ is coming soon. We're going to pick this up um, next week and finish this part and, and then explore more of how he calls us to live. But what I encourage you to do today is to simply in your heart say, Lord, I want your will. I don't know what it looks like and I'm fearful about what it may involve, but you've shown me your heart and your character and that you can be fully trusted because of what you did in Jesus Christ for me. And so I'm gonna trust you. I'm gonna release control of my will and seek to turn and follow your will for my life wherever it leads. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would help each of us to do that today. Lord, that we would trust you enough you have demonstrated your love towards us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. What further evidence do we need 
to know that we can trust you. If we can trust you with our eternal salvation, surely I can trust you with today and tomorrow. Surely I can trust you with my relationships, with my work, with my happiness. Lord, enable us to place all that we are into your hands because that is the safest place in all of the universe. Not our will, but your will be done. In Jesus' name.